Well, if you'd open your Bibles back up to uh, 2 Samuel, chapter uh, 16. If you're new with us, we've been working our way through this book, kind of section by section, and we're up to chapter 16 today. One of the things that's become very clear as we've uh, gone through this book is how the, the kingdom of David anticipates the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom that we live in now. David is, uh, is God's special chosen king, like Jesus. And uh, he conquers God's enemies and saves his people, like Jesus. And he brings them into a place of peace and rest and, and blessing, exactly what we receive in Christ spiritually and, and ultimately in heaven. So in the big picture, there's, we see this clear parallel between David's kingdom and Jesus' kingdom now that we live in. But the interesting thing is, even in the small details of this, of this book, uh, we see, although David is, is a sinner at many points and fails, we see these very specific anticipatory parallels to Jesus' life. For example, a few weeks ago, in chapter 15, we saw David unjustly rejected by his people and then forced on a walk of shame out of Jerusalem through the Kindred Valley up the Mount of Olives where he was betrayed by a close friend. It's really incredible. He actually pre-traced the exact footsteps of Jesus and his circumstances of, of his journey to the cross over a thousand years later. It's one of these aspects of scripture that, that just builds our confidence in divine inspiration, doesn't it? All these historical moments and teachings that years before Jesus clearly point to him and find specific detailed fulfillment in his death and resurrection. And today's text fits this trajectory it anticipates the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. You see, one unmistakable mark of Jesus' ministry throughout all the Gospels is his, uh, his interaction with people. Everywhere he goes, Jesus keeps coming, people keep coming to Jesus and having these profound conversations with him. And, uh, and these interactions... You know, Jesus, as he goes through these towns, doesn't come through on, you know, held up on, on, you know, some poles on a pie or in a chair all around where people trying to reach up and touch him. No, he comes through and he interacts. His kingship and his kingdom is, is a personal reality. It touches people's lives with healings and teachings and comfort and sometimes rebuke and judgment. So we have all those stories, right? The woman at the well, and Matthew and the tax collector, and Jairus the synagogue ruler, and the various demoniacs, and the rich young man, and Zacchaeus, and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and Pilate, and Mary, and Martha, and the man with the withered hand, and the man by the pool, and I could just go on. All the way to the disciples. And in all these interactions, we are kind of invited as readers to, to see ourselves. You know, who, who are we like? Who do we relate to as they respond to Jesus as God's king? 
And this text works in the same way. All these people coming to David, God's king. That's what we find here. In chapter 15, last, uh, two weeks ago, we saw uh, Ittai, the Gittite, and Zadok, and Abiathar, the priest, all coming positively to David and, and wanting to serve him. Hushai, the archite, coming as David's friend. But in today's text, we see three more people, three more interactions, but these are not, not good ones. Each peace person we see come to David today ends up kind of an enemy. They're, they're rejectors of God's king, and thus rejectors of God. And I think we're supposed to take a look and consider ourselves. Now, the first character that we see is a man named Ziba. Let me read verse 1 and 2 again. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, and hundreds of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruits for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. Ziba, if you remember from chapter 9, was a servant of the house of Saul. He used to oversee much of Saul's wealth, his fields and his vineyards and his household goods. And when Saul's kingdom went down, Ziba managed in some way to hold on to those things. So when David took over power and he wanted to honor Saul's house, he went to Ziba and asked, asked is there a relative of Saul whom I may show kindness to? And Ziba pointed him to Mephibosheth, Saul's crippled grandson. And David then transferred all Saul's wealth to Mephibosheth and made Ziba and his sons his servants. So Ziba shows up here uh, uh, as David and his men are, are fleeing for their lives, and he shows up bearing gifts. He, he seems to have come with this devotion and, and loyalty to help David and his men. And he supplies them with hundreds of loaves of bread and tons of fruit and even wine, exactly what David and his men would have needed, and, and his family as well, considering how uh, quickly they had to leave. So Ziba appears to be this timely, faithful, loyal servant of David. He seems to want nothing more than to serve his king. But as we read on, we find out that things are not as they seem. David asks as to the whereabouts of Mephibosheth. He says to, you know, Ziba, where's, where's your master? And in, in, in verse 3, this is what Ziba says. He says, Behold, uh, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. He says, Well, look, David, actually, uh, Mephibosheth, the one that you were so generous and giving to, all Saul's wealth, he, he, uh, he kind of abandoned you. He, he saw this whole mess as an opportunity for him to get back his father's power, so, uh, yeah, he didn't, he didn't come. It's just me, uh, 
you know, that's come as, as, loyal, as your loyal servant with all these provisions. Now, at first glance, that seems pretty outrageous. How could Mephibosheth do such a thing? What an ungrateful punk. As, and, you know, as, when you read it, you're kind of like, man, kind of makes you mad. We can imagine how David must have felt hearing that. But the thing is, of course, when we get to chapter 19, if you've read through the book, we find out it's all a lie. Ziba has actually stolen Mephibosheth's horse, horse leaving him there as, as a cripple, and he's taken the provisions of his house, and he's made up this whole story of Mephibosheth's disloyalty. Knowing that David in his present situation would have no way to check out the facts, he blatantly throws Mephibosheth under the bus. And of course, the question is why? But the answer is quite simple. It's verse 4. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me find favor in your sight, my lord and king. Ziba wanted the wealth. He wanted it all for himself. The wealth of Saul's kingdom, God's king, that he was supposed to just be a steward of, he wanted it. He probably never got over the fact that right when he got his hands on it, after Saul's death, David handed it over to Mephibosheth and even made him and his sons his servants. So we can see clearly when we see what's going on in the whole book that Ziba's loyalty and giving and homage to David, God's king, is not real. It's really all about himself. His, his worship of David, his homage, is actually self-serving. He's using David for his own gain. His worship is about his wealth, his piety is about his own prosperity. Ziba is to be a servant, but he comes to David actually to be served. We see people treat this way, Jesus this way in the Gospels, don't we? They seem to be faithfully following him, but Jesus seems right through many of them. And he calls them out as people who just want their bellies filled in John 6. They can, they, they can see that Jesus can provide food and do miracles and heal sickness, and they're only following him for what they can get now. They're not real worshipers. And when things get rough, they fall away very fast. They have no real loyalty, no intention of following him to the cross. And of course, I think we're supposed to look at Ziba here and consider ourselves. Maybe our duplicity is not so blatant. Maybe we're not trying to trick Jesus, our king, into blessing us. But maybe just little by little, we've bought into some of the consumeristic and prosperity lies of our culture that have infiltrated the church. So that our loyalty to and worship of Jesus is actually kind of conditional and manipulative, like Ziba. I wrote down a few uh, x-ray questions, I call them, to see, uh, to see if there's some Zebianism in us. Here's a few questions. Do you kind of expect that your faithfulness to Jesus will work out in some kind of present prosperity and blessing in your life? Do you see your wealth 
as yours because you earned it rather than only what you have been given to steward for Jesus. Do you sometimes find yourself using brothers and sisters in Christ for your own personal gain, maybe in business or maybe relationally? When things are not going well for you and hardships come, does, does your faithfulness to God wane? Because you're sure you deserve better. You see, I think we need to ask ourselves honestly, am I just kind of using Jesus to serve myself, or am I his servant? Now there's another man who comes along and intercepts David as he journeys into exile. But his reaction to God's king is very different from Ziba, Ziba and I've titled him Shimei the Rager. He doesn't come uh, to David feigning devotion. He comes furious. Picture David and his servants and his army, his mighty men, thousands of men marching along, and suddenly this guy, this lone guy, is running alongside them, running along the hillside, even coming amongst them, screaming at the top of his lungs and raging and ranting at David and throwing stones at him over and over. Verse 6 sums it up. Let's look at it. This is what he says. It says, And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and at all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right and on his left. You've got to be pretty angry to do that. Really, really angry. And I want us to notice a couple things about Shimei's anger here, his rage. First of all, it's stupid anger. He's literally throwing rocks at an army. He's so enraged that he's endangering himself. You remember Ab Abishai's suggestion in verse 9? I love this guy. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. That's how I imagine he said it. He wants to cut off his head. That ought to stop him from cursing. It's really hard to aim to throw rocks without your head. You ever been really stupid angry? Where you're actually endangering yourself? You know, you start driving like a maniac because somebody cut you off in traffic. I'll show you. I'll kill my whole family in a fiery crash. One time I was doing some remodeling for my parents. It was late at night. Nobody was home. I was standing up on, a, on the counter in the kitchen trying to strip a wire. And it wouldn't come. And I got really angry. And I jerked that thing as hard as I could. Smacked myself right in the face with the wrench. Knocked myself clean out. Landed on the floor. Woke up later with my eye all pussed shut. Because I stuck the wire right in my eye. Anger. Stupid anger. But his anger isn't just stupid here. His anger is completely wrong. I mean, stupid anger is quite often wrong because we're not thinking clearly. But look at verse 7. This is the reason for his 
anger. And Shimei said, as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. He blames David for the downfall of Saul's house. He thinks Saul's blood is on David's hands. But of course, if you've been with us through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, nothing could be farther from the truth. David had done everything to spare Saul. He would not touch the Lord's anointed. He had time after time chances to kill him, and he would not do it. He kept his own men from assassinating Saul. And the man who actually claimed to put Saul to death, David had him executed. And when Abner, Saul's son, tried to take up his father's throne against David, David tried to broker peace with him. It was Joab that killed him. Saul's house came down because of Saul's disobedience. He fell under God's judgment. This man's anger Shimei's anger is completely misguided. He's got it wrong. He has misjudged God's king. And finally, I want you to notice about his anger. Not only is it stupid and it's wrong, it's a pietistic anger. Not only does he invoke the Lord's name, the Lord has avenged on you. This is the Lord doing this, David. He literally takes the high ground. You get to verse 13, you see that he's literally up on the side of the hills, throwing the rocks down. He takes the high ground, and he's throwing stones. Who gets to throw stones? The sinless one. This guy thinks he is acting for God as this pure judge and jury over David, God's king. Shimei has this anger at David and his followers, that is stupidly irrational and wrong and self-righteously judgmental. But of course, we are very familiar with this kind of response to God's king, aren't we? It's all throughout the Gospels. The Pharisees and Sadducees come after Jesus with this same kind of rage. It's a stupid anger. They're always going after Jesus for like healing people on the Sabbath. Jesus tries to point out that doesn't make sense. They rage at him for healing a, a paralytic and, and offering forgiveness because he's claiming divinity, never thinking that the very thing he is doing is backing up his claim. And they accuse him of, of using the devil's power when he's constantly actually casting out demons. And he points out to them it doesn't make any sense. Not only are they wrong in their accusations, like Shimei, um, they are not only are excuse me not only are they stupid and they're wrong in them. Ultimately, Pilate points that out. I find no guilt in this man. Yet they hate him all the more, and they whip the crowd into cursing and mocking him, calling for his crucifixion, standing pietistically as judge and jury over God's king. They do it all in the name of religion and law. He is mocked, he is cursed, he is judged, he is crucified in the name of God. 
And of course, this reaction to Jesus and his followers is still going on today. This unreasonable, almost irrational anger against Jesus and Christians. We can point to the, the obvious example of, of religionists like, like Islam who condemn Jesus and the cross as, as a scandal and terrible and call for violence against Christians and incite hatred. But what is more disturbing, I think, is the secularists who have become almost religious in their passionate rage against Christians, cursing us as hypocrites and bigots and haters and oppressors putting all the ills of society on us. Recently, some in the news media have dubbed evangelicals the Taliban of America. And of course, this kind of labeling justifies this hyper self-righteous condemnation, this judge and jury attitudes towards Christ and Christians. And this is from people whose very life framework leaves no grounds for real ethical or moral, moral standards. It, it makes no sense. But that is the point. It's stupid, wrong, pietistic rage, ultimately against Jesus, God's king. As Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. Maybe you know someone like this, with this almost irrational rage against Christianity and Jesus. Maybe you have somebody like that in your family. So what do you do? How do you respond? Well, I have to admit, my response is often in my heart very Abishai-esque. You know? Just cut off their heads. I want to deal with irrational anger with my own irrational anger because it makes me mad that they're sort of right in some of their claims, right? I am a hypocrite. The disciples react in the same way. You remember in, um, in Luke 9 when Jesus goes into the village of Samaritan and he preaches and they, re- and they all reject him and the disciples say, hey, I have an idea. He says, what's that? They say, uh, why don't we call down fire from heaven to kill them all? Very Abishai-esque. But look at how David responds here. It's so beautiful and such a rebuke to me. Look at verse 11. And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. You see, David, although being innocent of the actual accusations of Shimei as to Saul's blood, knows he isn't really innocent and guiltless. He knows his own son is after him, and it goes back to his sin with Bathsheba. He knows he is a man of blood, Uriah's blood. So he sees these circumstances as perhaps part of God's judgment which he deserves so instead of lashing out and cursing back what does he do he entrusts himself to the Lord the Lord sees the injustice 
of Shimei. The Lord may even choose to make it right, he says. But it's, he, he puts it in his hands. And David just puts it there and leaves it there. He rests there. He entrusts himself to the Lord and just endures the cursing, which, by the way, goes on and on and on. Shimei keeps following him all the way on his journey. And it's this incredible anticipation of Christ again. Remember uh, 1 Peter 2.21? I had it read today. You might have wondered why I had that section read. Let me just read a little part of it. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who, is, who judged justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Our King, Jesus, who was sinless, deserving of no cursing and no judgment, didn't fight back, didn't say, off with their heads, didn't call down fire from heaven, Instead, he entrusted himself to the Lord, the just judge, and he took it all. He took all the cursing and judgment for us. He became a curse for us that he might give us righteousness and heal us. What a king. What a savior. What an example that we may follow in his steps. Now, there's one more character here. One more rejecter of God's king that I want us to notice. And his name is Ahithophel. Yes, there is this section in verses uh, 15 through 19 about uh, Hushai and his friendship with David. But we're going to look at that more next week as we look at chapter 17, which is all about Hushai. What I want us to notice as we finish is Ahithophel. And I've t- entitled him, and that's, that comes in verse 20 and following. And I've entitled him Ahithophel the Betrayer. For obvious reasons. He wasn't part of Saul's household like the other guys, like Ziba and Shimei were. Whose household was he part of? He was part of David's household. He was actually part of David's very inner circle. Like one of the disciples, like Judas. And it was when David had crossed the Kidron Valley and went up on the Mount of Olives that his betrayal is revealed, just like Judas. And later, if you read on, you'll find out how his life ends. He hangs himself. A lot like Judas. He is clearly the prefiguring of Judas. A guy who starts out so well as a servant and follower of God's king, but when things get rough, he is out. And he's all for himself. And he betrays David. And in this section, his betrayal is, is kind of, it goes from words to action. It is solidified in verses 20 to 22. Let me, let me actually read. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. 
He, go, he counsels him to go in and sleep with the concubines that David has left behind so that all, and do it in a way that all Israel will know, which he does. He puts a tent up on the roof. And it's, it's a power play, everybody says. It, points out, it makes you know, claim to David's throne. But more than that, it is this personal attack that, that, that kind of seals any, any reconciliation, kind of burns the bridge behind him. Ahithophel is trying to seal the deal so David would never be able to claim his throne again. Total betrayal. And when we read this story again, we wonder, how could he do it? How could he turn on David, his king, in such a personal and permanent kind of way? Well, I want us to notice the last verse of the text, verse 23. Now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed by both David and by Absalom. Ahithophel was a very, very, very smart guy. A very insightful, clever thinker. He's that guy that just seemed to be able to outthink everybody around him. He always had things figured out to such an extent that when he spoke, people listened. They listened like they were listening to the word of God. That's, that's some power. That's some sway. But it might just breed a bit of arrogance, don't you think? Can you imagine people listening to you that way? That, that's cult leader kind of power. You see, I think his strength is what becomes his downfall. He knew the promises of God. He knew David was God's anointed king and that God had promised him a forever kingdom. He knew that. But in the present circumstances... With Absalom taking over, all he could see, his genius mind just couldn't see how that was going to work out. I'm sure he could give hundreds of reasons why Absalom was going to come out on top and David's reign was clearly over. And he could explain why it was better for Israel and for him and for, for everybody really just to accept this reality and abandon David. And no one could argue him out of it. No one probably even tried. So in the end, he could not bring himself to trust God and his promises over his own noggin, over his own understanding and plan. It's that simple and that sad. Especially when you look at how his life ended. His brilliance didn't get him that far. Maybe you know this person. They think they're just too smart for all this Jesus stuff. Too much of a scientific thinker to engage in this faith stuff. Maybe it's your issue. I have a friend that says he can't deal with Christianity because he can't believe in things that, that he can't understand. He's a science man. Really? You can't believe in what you don't understand. You mean like electricity? We don't understand it. 
Science observes it. Science points to things about it, but it has no explanation of why it actually works. They don't know. But of course, we still believe it. We trust it every day. What about the conundrum of the reality we live in without God? Here we are hurling through an ever-expanding universe on this big rock, supposedly just randomly come into existence out of nothing. Yes, it makes total sense, I understand. No, we don't. But most people believe it. My friends, much of the modern world has decided that it's just too smart for God, which is pretty scary if you look at the average IQ. You don't have to be actually smart to think you're too smart. But that's the thing. It's, it's really not about smarts and intellectual prowess. It's about control and trust. It's about the rebellion of sin. Now, I know looking at all these various rejections of David as, as God's king... When you just kind of go through them like this, it can be pretty discouraging. Because we see all these same responses today as people reject Jesus. We see false devotion that's trying to use Jesus like Zeba. We see outright violent hatred and pietistic judgment like Shimei. We see people who are just sure they're too smart for all this like Ahithophel. And it can be overwhelming as we are called to go out with the gospel. It can feel pretty hopeless. How is God going to bring in his kingdom with all this rejection? But I want us to notice something in these stories that's pretty obvious when you step back. And that is God's sovereign hand. Ziba's false piety may be a lie and a trick, that seems to work out for his own gain. It may be that he seems to be using David, but in the end, it's him getting used. God is using him to supply David and his men with the much-needed supplies they need so that God can execute his plan. He's using Ziba's evil for his good. Shimei may be throwing stones and cursing and hating God's king, but even David sees this may be part of God's discipline for his own life. God is clearly building David's trust, shaping David, sanctifying his king through Shimei's evil. And Ahithophel, his betrayal, Well, it's clearly a fulfillment of God's promised punishment on David, pronounced by Nathan back in chapter 12. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you you did it in secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. His act, Ahithophel's act of treachery, only executes God's word, which is always good in the end. 
like Judas betraying Jesus. He was just working out God's plan to send him to the cross, bringing our salvation. We need to keep following God's rejected king. We need to look back to Ittai and Hushai and actually Zadok and Abathar, the priests, who follow him at the risk of their own lives. We need to be faithful servants. We need to keep going out with the gospel because God is at work getting it done, even in all the rejection of this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that helps us step back and have a perspective beyond our own to see things that you have done and are doing. Help us as we come and face so much rejection, the rejection your son faced, not to be like Abishai, but to, but to follow the example of your son. May we entrust ourselves to you as just judge and be your witnesses in this world. Amen.